Be Christ's church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. Church, would you, would you pray with me to the one whose name is so beautiful and wonderful and powerful before we dive into the word together? God, thank you for giving us in yourself something worth worshiping. Lord, there's, there's a lot of things that this world tempts us to want to chase after and Ultimately, we want to chase after even our own, our own glory, our own fame, our own fleshly desires. But, Lord, we're here because we've, we've found that none of those things satisfy. And that it is only in your presence where there are pleasures forevermore. God, we found that it's in your presence where we truly find soul satisfaction. God, we found that... It, in the hearing of the gospel, in the believing of the gospel, that, that we've been made new, we've been transformed, we've been changed as we saw in Saul's life last week. God, that you've confronted us and then converted us for those who are in Christ Jesus. And, and you've commissioned us, you've given us a, a new purpose. And God, I pray today, that as we turn our attention back to Acts chapter 9, that you would, God, that you would continue your saving and sanctifying work in our lives. And I pray it for the glory of Christ and in his name. Amen. Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. Beginning in the second half of verse 19. Hear with me the word of the Lord. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and the he there is Saul. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned of this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Last week, 
Jesus confronted, converted, and commissioned Saul on the road to Damascus. He told him, you're going to have a mission of magnifying Jesus among the sons of Israel and even among Gentiles. It didn't take very long for what Jesus said of Saul to become true in Saul's life, did it? Pretty quickly, like a half of a verse, and we're into Saul fulfilling exactly what Jesus said would come of his life. He goes from he goes to Damascus to remove disciples, and now he's in Damascus, the second half of verse 19, hanging out with disciples. Luke tells us he was with the disciples for some days. That's that's uh, sort of the country way of saying a good long time. In fact, Luke tells us, uh, Saul tells us elsewhere in Galatians chapter 1 that he was, he was there for three years. He gives us a little more detail. He's in Damascus, then he goes to Arabia, and then he comes back to Damascus, and he ministers there for three years. Luke's, Luke is sort of collapsing all of that detail to make this point. As soon as Jesus does something in Saul's life, Saul's life demonstrates that Jesus has done something in his life. His encounter with Jesus makes an immediate and observable impact in his life. He doesn't trust Jesus and then wait for 40 years to do something with what Jesus has done in his life. He's saved, and now he's preaching the gospel. So I want to consider from these verses, the second half of verse 19 down through 31, what happens in the life of someone who is confronted by Jesus and converted by Jesus and commissioned by Jesus? Because that's true of every Christian. We're not all Saul, but every Christian has been confronted by Jesus with their sin and their, their need for Christ. They've been changed and transformed on the inside, not made nice, but made new, as we saw last week. And they've been commissioned. They've been given something to do with this gospel that we've received. So, we talked about conversion last week, or this change that God makes in the life of a sinner and making him a saint. And this week, we're going to explore what it is that changes about the life of a Christian in a message that I'm calling, Jesus Changed Everything. Everything. And the first thing I want you to see in verse 20, 22, and 28 is this, meeting Jesus changes your message. Meeting Jesus changes your message. In verse 20, Luke shows that Saul began sharing the gospel right away. Immediately, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. By receiving the Holy Spirit who unites him with Jesus, he gets new spiritual eyes to behold Jesus, the Son who was promised by the Father to come and rescue sinners. He's now able to see Jesus in the Old Testament. This Old Testament that he had read and thought was about him and was about uh, his ethnicity and his identity as a Jew, suddenly he realizes that the Old Testament wasn't about him, that it was about Jesus who is the Son of God, verse 20, who is the Christ, verse 22, and he, verse 28, preaches salvation, how? In the name of the Lord Jesus. In other words... Even though Saul has not yet met one apostle, he is preaching the same message of the apostles. All of these descriptors that Jesus is the Son of God, that He's the Christ, that He's preaching in the name of the Lord Jesus, He's sharing the exact same message. 
Salvation is in the name, in the authority, in the power, not of, of my biology, not of my identity, not of my ethnicity. It is only in Jesus. This is a seismic shift in the message for Saul, is it not? Before Saul met Jesus, he was proud. Philippians 3 tells us he was proud of his law-keeping. He was proud of his Jewish lineage. But meeting Jesus changes your perspective on yourself. It opens our eyes to behold God's holiness and His righteousness and our profound need for Christ. When, when Luke says that Saul was saying, Jesus is the Son of God, do you see that in verse 20? He was saying, Jesus is the Son of God. There's, there's some question among the Bible scholars about, was he saying that Jesus is the human Son of God? Because later he'll say that Jesus was the Christ. Or was he saying that Jesus was God the Son, the always existing Son of God? You know what I believe he was saying? Both. Has anybody ever asked you a question, an either-or question, and you're like, yes, the answer is yes. Do you want pizza or tacos tonight for dinner? Yes, I do. Right? I, both sound great. Uh, is Jesus the Son of God in His humanity, the, the human Son that God sent, miraculously conceived in Mary as a sinless Son who could be a substitute to bridge the gap between God and man? Yes. Is He the pre-existent, always eternal son, God the Son, co-creator of the universe with God the Father and God the Spirit? Yes, He's both. You say, well, how do you know that's what He's saying? Well, because Saul wrote a bunch of letters. Did y'all know that? He becomes, Saul becomes Paul, and in Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, listen to what Paul says. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, that's his humanity, right? Descended from David according to the flesh, and then listen to what he says. And was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. How? By his resurrection from the dead. That's God the son. He is God. He conquered death. In Romans 8, verse 3, Paul shows that Jesus existed as the Son before He was conceived in Mary when he says this, that God, by sending His own Son, you can't send something that doesn't already exist. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh. So God came down. God the Son condescended. He emptied Himself of all but love. And He took on our humanity so that He could bridge the gap between a sinful people and a holy God. And that message, that story became Saul's story. It is why he writes in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. When, when Jesus hung on that cross and he died for sin, he didn't die for his sin, he died for my sin. Therefore, I'm dead to my old attitudes and my old patterns and my old beliefs and my old pride. And I'm, I'm alive for a different reason. He goes on and says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live how? By faith. In the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. His story changed. He'd been bought at the high price of God's Son. His story is no longer about the greatness of Saul. 
His story is about the greatness of his sin and the wonder that God the Son became a human son to save him, a sinful son of Adam. When you meet Jesus, your story will change. But secondly, when you meet Jesus, when you encounter Christ in salvation, when you believe on Jesus, it will change your mission. It doesn't just change your story. Changes your, your mission, your purpose for existing. On the way to Damascus, Saul is going to destroy disciples. But after he meets Jesus, verse 19, he is with the disciples. Did you know that meeting Jesus means you get a new family to love and to be loved by? A family that is created not by natural biology, but is created by the Word and the Spirit that unites us supernaturally in the love of God to be on mission for the Son of God. When Saul sees Jesus, he goes from destroying disciples to making disciples. I can't think of a more radical change in the mission of Saul. Jesus did not give Saul the gospel to hide but to share the message, the story that you have to hear to believe on the Son of God. You get that message, not to hide it under a bushel and keep it for yourself, but to give it away. And in verse 21, we read that in Damascus, all who heard Saul were amazed. Later, when Saul gets to Jerusalem in verse 26, it says this, the disciples were all afraid of him. Why were they afraid of him? Because the last they heard... He went to Damascus to kill Christians, or at least bring them back to imprison them. And then Barnabas shows back up. You remember Barnabas from chapter 4? He sold some land and gave it to the church, and he encouraged the church with this very generous gift to the church. And now he encourages the church with yet another gift. What is the gift? It is the gift of a testimony about Saul. What does he say about Saul? Look, he saw the Lord. He's no longer persecuting Christians. He's preaching Christ. He has a new mission. What frightened the disciples in Jerusalem and what astonished his hearers in Damascus was what? It was the sudden and radical change in Saul's mission. In Damascus, verse 21, they asked two rhetorical questions. Rhetorical questions expect either a positive answer or a negative answer. In this case, both rhetorical questions expect a positive answer. I'm going to paraphrase these questions. I'm going to put them in what I call the PDP version. The PDPV, Pastor Daniel Palmer version. All right, here's what, here's what they ask. Isn't that the same guy who devastated people who called upon the name of Jesus in Jerusalem? Or, or maybe we could put it this way. Is the guy who violently oppressed followers of Jesus, now vigorously urging us to follow Jesus? And the answer to those questions is, sure enough, that's what's going on. And then they say, that, didn't he come here to do to us what he was doing up there? Was it, wasn't his mission to make more mayhem for Jesus' people, to take them back to Jerusalem to stand trial? Wasn't he here to destroy us? Yep, sure enough. But church, meeting Jesus changes your mission. Before meeting Jesus, we all had a, a me-centered mission. A me-centered agenda. Some version of a me-centered 
agenda. You know, you might say, well, that, that really wasn't me. I, I don't think I was, I was all about myself. I mean, but you know, the reality is a me-centered mission comes in all sorts of, sorts of shapes and sizes and philosophies. Much of it can even sound all right on the surface. Think positively. Believe in yourself. Work hard. Pay it forward. Be kind. And a bunch of other stuff that you could fill in the blank with that you've probably heard for most of your life. And the reality is, this advice, it's not all necessarily bad, but if it flows from elevating self rather than from union with Jesus Christ, if it is not riveted to the gospel, these things only deceive us. It's a bit like the jelly bean that my daughter once gave me. Hey, Dad, why don't you try this jelly bean? And it was a dog food flavored jelly bean. These worldly philosophies tickle itching ears. They sound good on the outside. They look good on the outside. But when you bite into them and you pursue them, they leave you lifeless and looking for more because there is only Jesus who can save. It is only Jesus who can rewire your heart to desire to do good, not to make yourself look good, but for the glory of the one and only who truly is good. At the end of the day, anything other than surrender to King Jesus and living for Him and His glory ends in death. And it leaves people lost in a sea of self and selfishness. What's your mission? Has Jesus truly changed your mission? What do your career ambitions say about your mission? What do your dreams of the future say about your mission? What does your definition of the good life say about your mission? What does your use of your time and your money say about your mission? What do your hobbies and your expenses and your most prized possessions and the deepest longings of your heart say about your mission. Has Jesus, has King Jesus changed your mission? May we ask God to show all of us how He desires to use us in His mission in our present season of life. And may we, we be willing to take out the, the check of our lives. If you could think of your life as a blank check, may we be willing to sign our names to it endorse it over to Jesus and let him write in the memo line whatever it is that he wants us to do and whatever it is that it might cost of us. May Jesus be our mission. You say, that, that sounds really hard. God, God might call me to serve internationally. He might, might call me to learn a new language and to spend my life among a new people group. He might, because as a church, we're praying that he would raise up five missionary units to be on the ground or in training by 2030. And I pray that some within the sound of my voice would be among those 
who would trade the American dream for the gospel dream, that they would see churches planted and people come to saving faith in Christ. For, for others of you, uh, you see what's happening in culture, and, and you see the, the need to disciple your children, that they need more than a few hours at church every week. And for some of you, he's going to call you to step away from your workplace and to step into your home and to learn a whole new skill set and maybe to, to disciple your kids not just for two hours a week at church, but every day during the week. He, he might call you to be at home with your kiddos to disciple them. For others of you, he might call you out of the home and into the school to be a TA or a teacher or a librarian or somebody who's going to make them fire you for your stand for Christ. As you stand in the classroom and you magnify Jesus and when the content and the curriculum comes to worldviews and philosophies, you introduce them to the philosophy of Jesus Christ, the one who is truly wise, and the principal sits in your room and gives you a, an evaluation. You say, look, I'll walk through all the worldviews. This is a legitimate worldview, and it's the only one that will stand. Fire me if you have to. I'll go back home. Some of you need to get out and some of you need to get in, but God's going to call you to do some radical things in the culture that we now face. Hey, are you watching the news lately? Y'all, we, we can't be casual Christians. If, if we ever could, we can't any longer. We are entering into a culture and a society where it will cost you to follow King Jesus. You say, well, I... I can't do that. That's too hard. You're right. On your own, you can't do it. But I've got some good news. Meeting Jesus doesn't just change your message. It doesn't just change your mission. It also changes, uh, for the sake of alliteration this morning, it changes your motor. Verse 22, 27 through 29. I, I have a 2006 Mazda 3 hatchback with a five-speed transmission. Because I like acceleration. It's not so much speeding that I enjoy, it's getting up to speed and downshifting and zooming through the turns. I, I love to drive the snot out of my little 2006 Mazda 3. If y'all would edit that out when I need to sell my car, that'd be great. I'm just kidding. Um, it's a fun little car, but here's the reality. If I wanted to go camping and I wanted to tow a 41-foot RV behind that 2006 Mazda 3, I'd be in trouble, right? I'd be in a pile of trouble because that, that little 2.3 liter isn't going to be able to pull that RV. And that's kind of what we feel like when we get introduced to the mission of God. We're like, this is heavy. This is big. How in the world will I do it? I've got good news. When you trust in Christ, you get the Spirit of God who propels you forward in the mission of God. It's not about doing it on your own. It's not about your wisdom and your plans and your dreams. He puts you in, in a new setting, in a new context sometimes, but he, you get new power. The Spirit of God indwells us and unites us with Jesus, giving us His motivation, His passion, His energy, His insight that we need to magnify our King in a world that is set against Him. And that's what we see time and time and time again in the life of Saul. It isn't Saul's strength that carries him, it's the Lord's strength. That's what's happening in verse 22, right? We read that Saul confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving Jesus was the Christ. He confounded the Jews not because he was confusing, listen to this, but because he was convincing. He didn't stutter. 
it was not the information lacking clarity. It was crystal clear. The one who was crucified in Jerusalem and hung on a cross, he conquered the grave on the third day. He's the one that all the Old Testament writers were writing about, and you missed him, and we crucified him. But he's risen, and he's reigning, he's ruling in righteousness, and he's inviting people to open their eyes to see their need for him, and to trust him, and to get a new life, and a new purpose, and a new mission right now. And they were confounded because they were hard-hearted. It was plain. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the anointed king that the Father promised. But the Jewish leaders in Damascus would not embrace the proof. In fact, they just plotted Saul's death. Saul's disciples help him escape through an opening in the city wall. Later, Saul will call it a window. When he arrives in Jerusalem, Barnabas advocates for him in verse 27 as one who had preached boldly in the name of the Lord. Do you see that? Verse 27. And he had to do that because they were afraid to hear from Saul. They were afraid to be around Saul. And then once Saul is accepted by the community, look at verse 28. He is seen preaching boldly in Jerusalem as well. Saul's boldness is not about his personality. When I think about Saul, I think about a bold guy. You think about a bold guy? I mean, I read about Saul, I'm like, that guy was, he had some moxie. He's a tough dude. But listen, Saul's boldness is not about his personality here. You say, how do you know that? It's one thing to be bold when you are hunting other people down with the legal authorities behind you. It's another thing to be hunting people. It's another thing when you're the one being hunted. And even though Saul is now at odds with the religious leadership, the temple leadership, he's still being bold to the point that he is hunted down in Damascus, runs out of the city, and eventually will be hunted down in Jerusalem as well. It is the Spirit of God who emboldens Saul. Verse 28 says that he went in and out among them at Jerusalem. In other words, he, he walked around openly and freely, and he spoke plainly about Jesus. Peterson says it this way, he preached fearlessly despite the risks. Church, I'm here to tell you this morning that when you meet Jesus, you will get a new message that motivates your life. You will get a new mission to tell others that message. And yes, You can't do it in your own strength, but God says it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, declares the Lord. It's not your strength, your savvy, or your stamina. It's the Spirit of God who unites you with the Son of God who will give you the power to pursue the mission of God. You get a new motor. Fourthly, we see in this text, verse 23 through 25 and 29 through 30, that meeting Jesus means you will share in his mistreatment. Meeting Jesus means you'll share in his mistreatment. Saul preaches with freedom in Damascus for many days, but the Jewish leaders reach their limit and they run him out of town. In 2 Corinthians eleven thirty-two, 32, Saul tells us that the, the plotting of the Jewish leaders in Damascus also involved the governing authorities. When he says the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. Now, now this is interesting, right? Saul has had three years of public ministry. And then Jewish leaders conspire with the governing authorities to try and kill him. 
Can you think of somebody who had a three-year public ministry and after three years the Jewish leaders conspired with the governing authorities to try and kill him? In fact, they did kill him. That's not accidental. The parallel is intentional. Jesus is saying of Saul, you will represent me in a very real way on the earth. The people who don't believe that Christ would give you the power and the will and the fortitude to even suffer for the glory of God, they're going to see that you will and that you would. After he escapes from Damascus, the the pattern of his preaching and the Jews plotting and Saul escaping is repeated in Jerusalem. And we'll see this pattern repeated again and again and again in his missionary journeys. In verse 29, in Jerusalem, Saul takes the place of Stephen. You remember Stephen? The deacon who preached fearlessly and was stoned. Do you remember that Saul was the one consenting to his death? And now... The one who had consented to the stoning of Stephen is disputing with the Hellenist just like Stephen had been. And the Hellenist who sought to kill Stephen, of which Paul was a ringleader, is now being pursued by the very people that he used to be leading in the destruction of Stephen. But Saul escapes from Jerusalem because the Lord has more suffering and gospel sharing ahead for Saul. Indeed, Saul will be a catalyst to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. God will use the story of a Jesus-denying, disciple-destroying Pharisee-turned-Jesus-exalting, disciple-making preacher to get the gospel to the world. And here's what I want to tell you, church. I don't know what your backstory is, but don't hide it. If you've been cleansed and redeemed by Jesus' blood, there is no condemnation, Romans 8.1, for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we've got a lot of Christians walking around not talking about their backstory, but saying, I know Jesus. Well, people don't see the change in your life if you leave out the backstory. Don't be ashamed of your backstory. Tell your backstory and tell what God is doing in your life now and that you're blessed and pleased to live and walk for Him. We aren't just nice people because we've met Jesus. We're new. He made us new. Tell your story. Saul tells the church at Corinth about his experiences as a church planter. It's not easy, right? To, to walk in the mission of God always. He, he tells the church at Corinth over in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that he faced imprisonments with countless beatings and was often near death. He goes on to talk about shipwreck and all sorts of other things. In his last verse in that section, he goes, Besides all of the mistreatment that I've endured, I have in my heart constant anxiety for all the churches. I labor on behalf of the church. Brothers and sisters, we may not face an existence like Saul's, but if we serve in Christ's mission, we will share in the mistreatment of our King. And yet, Jesus says this about those who are persecuted for Him. Blessed are those who are persecuted. He tells us in verse 12 of Matthew 5, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Although he was persecuted, Saul does not lose 
heart. This is what he means when he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Whether my circumstances are good or whether they're bad, I can still glorify King Jesus. He doesn't mean he can suddenly dunk a basketball. He means no matter where he finds himself in life, he can keep moving forward with God. Saul Saul never forgot that he was a persecutor of the church. He never forgot that his salvation was an undeserved gift from God. And as a result, he was willing to share even in the mistreatment of Jesus so that others might have life in Jesus. Saul is an example to us. In Saul, we learn that those who belong to King Jesus by faith get a new message, they get a new mission, they get a new motor, and God sustains them even as they endure the Messiah's mistreatment to make Him known and to make His saving and sustaining power known among the nations. A new mission, uh, excuse me, a new message, a new mission, a new motor, A new perspective on the mistreatment that we will endure for following Christ. And finally, we see that meeting Jesus makes us prize maturity, which leads to multiplication. In Jerusalem, Saul's bold preaching again puts the lives of other Christians at risk. Some of the disciples, called brothers in verse 30, provide a way of escape for Saul, taking him down to Caesarea and then sending him off to his hometown of, of Tarsus. Just a few chapters ago, Saul was making the disciples flee from Jerusalem, and now Saul flees Jerusalem for the sake of the disciples. His departure provides a, a bit of a cooling off period for the church, and it takes him one step closer to fulfilling, as we'll eventually see, his mission to the Gentiles. Saul has gone from doing whatever it takes to stamp out the church to doing whatever it takes to strengthen the church. And the result of the escape of Saul is another summary statement in the book of Acts. We've seen summary statements in Acts 2, Acts 4, Acts 6, 7, and now we get another summary statement from Luke. And he says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. What does Luke want us to see as he he ends this section about the transformation in Saul's life? What does he want us to see about the church? He wants us to see that churches which mature in times of peace are healthy churches. He wants us to see that it is churches who pursue spiritual maturity that God in turn delights to multiply. This is one of the few places where Luke refers to the church overall. The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria rather than to a particular local church. In other words, when Saul gets off the scene for a while, there's a cooling off period for, for brothers and sisters in this growing region, there's this relative peace for believers in their various locations. The word peace, in this case, likely refers to a reduction of, of conflict with outside foes. But the word, more often in Scripture, communicates a wholeness or a oneness that flows from our peace with God and our peace with one another. God has brought the church through storm after storm after storm, which means that the church can and, and we can trust God in the storms to come. 
To have peace with God who is overall is to possess a peace that the world can't steal or comprehend. And what does the church do with the peace that God gives? Look at verse 31. They were built up, which is in the passive voice. How was the church built up? They were built up by the Holy Spirit. They kept on going, walking in the fear of the Lord. Not in the fear of their enemies, not in the fear of threats, not in the fear of bad circumstances, but in the fear of the Lord. In other words, the church was characterized, as Kellum writes, by a respectful obedience toward God. Church, I want you to lean into this for a second. We aren't guaranteed that we'll always be at peace. Our Ukrainian brothers and sisters did not know three months ago what was coming their way. Let's not be a church that wastes our peace time. Wasting our time of peace on frivolous pursuits. What did they do in times of peace? They pursued the heart of God wholeheartedly. They matured. The church did not waste its peace. It didn't pursue luxury. It didn't pursue comfort. It didn't pursue acceptance in the wider wider culture. The church pursued the heart of God. And when living for God brought pain, that same Holy Spirit who united with them with Jesus in salvation, look at verse 31, filled him with his comfort for every step of the journey. So the church cherished Jesus and the Spirit built them up in the faith and sustained them as they lived for his glory. And as they pursued God wholeheartedly, what happened? What are the last two words in verse 31? It multiplied. Again, in the passive voice. In other words, God grew the church. As the church pursued the heart of God, God in turn grew the church. Now, there's a lot of ways to try and grow a church that aren't biblical. We can do gimmicks. We can do games. We can get people. We can manipulate emotions. We can have people sign cards and walk aisles. And it's okay to walk an aisle if God's really doing something in your heart. And we can play invitational hymns that last for 35 minutes. We can have people raise, close their hands and raise their eyes. And we can manipulate and twist. Or we can just go after the heart of God. We can go wholeheartedly after what God wants. And we can let God give the increase. That's biblical church growth. That's what the church prizes. What are we going to do in our peacetime? We're going to go after the heart of God. We're going to tell people we've got a new message. We've got a new mission. We've got a new motor that compels us to do godly things in a world that is ungodly. And we're going to let God give the increase. Neither persecution nor peace could stop the growth of the early church. When Saul was persecuting the church, it grew. When Saul got off the scene and the church had peace, it grew. Why? Because they were pursuing the heart of God. Because they had a new mission with a new message and a new motor, a new perspective on their mistreatment, and they were committed to maturing in Christ. May God find us captivated by our King. May He find us maturing in Christ. And may King Jesus give the increase. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, I ask in this moment where we will will play and we will sing a, a song of invitation, an opportunity to respond. God, I pray that the response of those who are in Christ, those who are Christians, those who've been confronted and converted and commissioned by Jesus, God, I pray 
that you would give us the resolve as we sing to walk out of here different. To walk out of here not wasting peacetime, but pursuing maturity in Christ. And God, for those who are in this room who heard this message and they look at Saul's life and they say, I I haven't been changed. I haven't been converted. I, I... My spiritual eyes have been stuck on myself and I need Jesus today. God, I pray that in this, in this room and in this hour, in this moment of the hearing the gospel, God, that you would show up in their lives and they would run to King Jesus and be saved and be made new. God, I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.